From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, I speak with three-time Grammy Award-winning vocalist, Tony Award recipient, and humanitarian, Dee Dee Bridgewater. That's coming up on The Public Morality. CD released earlier this year entitled Memphis Yes I'm Ready For more than five decades Dee Dee Bridgewater has sung interpreted and scattered her way into the pantheon of great jazz vocalists 
She's a three-time winner of the Grammy Award. In 1975, she received the Tony Award for Best Featured Actress in a Musical in The Wiz. For 23 years, she was the host of National Public Radio's syndicated radio show, Jazz Set with Dee Dee Bridgewater. She is also a United Nations ambassador for the Food and Agriculture Organization. And in my opinion, when the great jazz vocals are enumerated, any list that does not include Dee Dee Bridgewater would be rendered incomplete. She was recently in Winston-Salem to perform a holiday concert with the Piedmont Wind Symphony, and it was my great honor to sit down with her prior to the concert. This interview was recorded on December 15th, 2017. Dee Dee Bridgewater, welcome. Thank you. Uh, let's start with a softball question, just get things rolling. Okay. How does Dee Dee Bridgewater define jazz? Well, jazz for Dee Dee Bridgewater means uh, freedom of speech, freedom of expression. Um, it's it's become jazz has become a kind of catchphrase, though, hasn't it? it indeed, <laughs> you know, <laughs> kind of everything has fallen under <laughs> jazz. But um, for me, for the original. Uh, well, for the beginnings of this music, this music was 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 founded on the ability to express ourselves as a people, as black people, in a way that was just intrinsic to us, and um, it was a way to to lay down a foundation and build on that foundation and improvise on that foundation and then go back to the root um, that was indigenous to us. No. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you grew up in Flint, Michigan. I did. So that says to me that you came of age around the apex of Motown. Oh, I was 12 when Motown started. I wasn't wasn't trying to date you, but yeah, okay, okay. It ain't about a date. I'm just saying I was 12 when Motown started. Motown started in 1962. So my, my question to you is... Yes, dear. How then did you get on this path... To jazz, my father was a jazz trumpet player. Um, in in my house, there was always jazz music on on our little record players, and um, I thought everybody listened to jazz music. I, I always had jazz. My mother listened to singers, um, mostly um, uh, unknown singers, but. Um, when she was pregnant with me, she was very fond of Ella Fitzgerald, and my mother swore that I could scat before I could talk, which made sense to me when I started singing because I always was able to scat. It was not something that I had to learn to do. So so growing up, it wasn't like your friends would come over and you'd have the four tops up to, uh, on the counter, and when they left, you pulled out Shirley Horn. So you, you just listened to jazz. Well... When my friends came over, first of all, um, we didn't have a lot of money, so we didn't have records, and so we didn't pull out records. <laughs> we were listening to the radio, okay? And um, so my girlfriends um, that I'm still friends with to, to this day never listened to jazz. And I didn't know that they didn't listen to jazz until my father had bought uh, Miles Davis Someday My Prince Will Come. Mm-hmm. And he had played it for me, and I just flipped. And I went over to my girlfriend's that evening, and I was like, oh, my gosh. I said, my, my, my father just brought home the Miles Davis album, Someday My Prince Will Come. And I said, it's so 
I don't know what the term was back then, but, you know, something to the effect that it was amazing. And they said, who? Miles? Miles? Who's Miles who? And I was like, Miles Davis, the trumpet player? They're like, what? Trump? What are you talking about? And that was that was my rude awakening when I realized that I, I lived in a kind of uh, duality, mm-hmm. a musical duality. Some of that duality, um, cor- please correct me, but some of the duality seems to come out um, in your latest uh, work, uh, Yes, Memphis, I'm Ready. Memphis, Yes, I'm yeah, Ready. Memphis, Yes, I'm Ready. Is that, <laughs> yeah, so... Um, so some of it comes out. So I have two questions okay. about 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 that project. Okay. Uh, the first one is uh, your rendition of Hound Dog. My question is: Were you thinking of Memphis's own Elvis Presley when you did it, or were you thinking of Big Mama Thornton? Is it? This is uh, my version of Hound Dog is uh, inspired by Big Mama Thornton. I was trying to make the point that Big Mama Thornton recorded Hound Dog first, that the song was written for her. It was her only hit. And Elvis Presley heard it and liked it, and so then he redid it, redid lyrics. Now, what I did not research, and so I don't know if this is true or not, is if Elvis Presley did uh, some of the lyric change, or if it was Lieber and Stoller that were working with him on on the new version of it. Mm-hmm. But Lieber and Stoller wrote Hound Dog for Big Mama Thornton after they had heard her sing. They said, we want to write you a song. And so that's who I'm honoring on this album. And you do also have uh, Don't Be Cruel. Uh, well, yeah, I had to include something by Elvis Presley because, you know, Memphis is synonymous with Elvis, or Elvis is synonymous with Memphis, you know. Um, El- Me- you know Memphis is also synonymous with April the 4th, 1968. And the very last selection that you have is Precious Lord. What's a- wait, I'm, don't throw a date out. I'm going like to come, come to you. I'm going okay, I'm I'm right. I'm to I'm reel you in. Don't okay, worry. Okay, don't all worry. Right, reel okay. me in. Okay, okay. I'm going to reel you all in. Right. Okay, go ahead. April the 4th, 1968, the okay. Lorraine Motel. Uh, oh. When uh, Martin Luther King, Precious Lord was reportedly the last words that he said. Cause he, he asked uh, the gentleman downstairs, they're getting ready to go, he's getting ready to speak, tell her to play Precious Lord. I had and, no idea. And tell her to play it real pretty for me. And then right shortly after that, the shot rang out. And so when I'm hearing your version of Precious Lord, um, for me, it was that you were recalling you know, that moment in the pathos is just in, just incredible. I'm a little blown away. Um, that is not the reason that I have Precious Lord on the album. Precious Lord um, is, is, is a song that has been speaking to me for, I don't know, like the last uh, maybe three years. Um, and it's a song, sometimes I will end a show, I was... I was raised Catholic, so I I totally missed the black church experience. Um, and I've always been a frustrated wannabe gospel singer. Um, so Precious Lord, um, I started doing from time to time and uh, with a young pianist named Michael King, who was part of the group of uh, the trumpet player that I mentored for several years named Theo Croker. And um, Michael King is from the church, 
And so I said, Michael, let's do Precious Lord. And so we would sometimes end a show with Precious Lord. That was rare. And so when I was putting this album together, um, because Precious Lord, you know, was written by by uh, Tommy Dorsey after his wife and his, his baby boy had died. And, and I don't know, it was just speaking to my spirit. And I just thought this particular album and this this musical and life journey that I was making going back to my birth city um, it just was the perfect ending for me and I think it's it it was also because it it this album I did when my mother was transitioning and um, I knew that you know her death was was imminent and um, this song has been lifting me up. Interestingly, though, I do not do this in, in concert. We have yet to perform this song in concert, interestingly enough. Hmm. What we have been doing in concert has been another song that, that spoke to me, and that's Purple Rain mm-hmm. by Prince. Prince. Now, before we go any further, okay, dear, I have a, a good friend in California who's listening to you right now from California. What's his name? His, name, name? his name is Gerald Jones. Hey, Gerald. And Gerald wanted me to ask you. Oh, gosh. When are you coming back to Yoshi's in Oakland? That's a direct question from Gerald Jones. And you can, ask, and you can talk uh, to Gerald. I don't know. I don't know when I'll be back at Yoshi's. I hope that it will be at, at some point in 2018. I do hope so. But there is nothing that is on the calendar as yet. We sure did have a good time when we were there. When were we there? Last November. In November of last year? Before Thanksgiving, the week before. Wow, the week before Thanksgiving of last year. Wow, really? If you're just joining us, um, this is Afternoon Jazz, hosted by Jim Steele. I'm Byron Williams. Host of the Public Morality and honored to be in conversation with the Grammy Award-winning vocalist extraordinaire and international humanitarian Dee Dee Bridgewater. Um, which jazz singers speak to your soul? Oh, there's Betty Carter. Mm-hmm. There's Abby Lincoln. There's of course Ella. There's of course Sarah. There's of course Billy Holiday. I've had a very long walk with Billy. Um, there's my sisters in song of today. There's Diane Reeves, who we must lift up in prayer. Um, there is Cassandra Wilson. Um, then there are some young jazz singing babies that I love. Cecile McLaurin Salvant, Cyril Aimé, who's French, um, and... Uh, I love her, but she's a little crazy. Jasmine Horn. Mm-hmm. So I love, I love these, I love these women, very, very much. One of the things there's another singer that um, I often overlook, and it's not intentional, and that's Sharonae Wade. Okay. Okay. So one of the things for me that I like so much about jazz, one of the aspects is the interpretation. Mm-hmm. And um, you've done a tribute uh, CD to Ella Fitzgerald, mm-hmm. which won two Grammys. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. You also did one uh, tribute CD to Billie Holiday. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you take 
say a song that you did with Billy on the, the tribute album to Billy Holiday. Say God bless the child. Mm-hmm. How do you transform that from a standard that most people associate with Billie Holiday mm-hmm. to something that you put your unique stamp on it? Um, usually when I listen to a song, it will speak to me in a particular musical manner. And for me, God, uh, God Bless a Child has a gospel feel to it. And um, I remember hearing a couple of interviews that Billie Holiday did where she herself said that this felt like a gospel song to her and she felt that it belonged in the church. I thought if I do it in a more uh, gospel feel, um, that maybe it may one day lead itself to to becoming a gospel standard. Uh, I'm, I'm smiling when you say that because I was a little crazy. I'm a, I'm a self-defrock pastor, former pastor. I was a little crazy when I was a pastor. And God plus the child was sang in my church. So I just... I didn't. I didn't know he oh, was. Oh, how wild! Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but you know, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I always, every time, I would listen to that song. I always heard it with a gospel feel to it. You know. So, and as we performed it more and more in live shows, it became more and more gospel oriented. And I put the the, the Hammond organ in there, and, <laughs> and we would just do it with uh, the the uh, organ player and myself. You know, or at least the first couple of verses of it. Now, my uh, my Mount Rushmore of uh, female vocalists. I'll just mm-hmm. put three on this. I, three. Uh, oh, Jim Steele. I'm so glad you cleared that up and it wasn't Byron Williams. Uh, <laughs> Sarah, Billy, and Ella. Mm-hmm. You've done a tribute CD to Billy. Mm-hmm. Won a Grammy. Mm-hmm. Done a tribute CD to Ella. Mm-hmm. One, two Grammys. Mm-hmm. You said those two along with Sarah are artists that speak to your soul. So why haven't we gotten a Sarah Vaughn tribute CD yet? Because I'm not doing see, the tributes. I'm, I've done them. I've done them. When I've, I've, you know, my walk with Ella Fitzgerald lasted almost six years. Almost six years I had to do Ella Fitzgerald. The way that I got out of Ella Fitzgerald was I said, let me do like Ella did. Let me do a kind of songbook. And then I chose Kurt Vile mm-hmm. because I wanted it to be different enough that it could move me away. But I also wanted it to be a songbook so that all of the the people who had come into my my sphere because of Ella would not be distraught with me just like leaving and I couldn't do an abrupt departure. So and I actually included a couple of of Kurt Vile songs that I knew Ella had sung. So that was the way I got out of that. My walk with Billie Holiday lasted almost 5 years. Um I don't like being considered the jazz singer who does tributes. Although for the listeners those two women did walk me to the Grammy podium, and it is because of those two women that I have my Grammys. So I am eternally grateful, and I also know that I am standing on their shoulders, you know, alongside of of, of the other singers that I, I mentioned. I was a huge fan of Nancy Wilson also. E-huge. 
my my walls of my bedroom when I was a teenager were adorned with with news clippings and photos and and her album covers. I I just thought she was the most strikingly gorgeous jazz singer that we'd ever had, you know. And then of course you know Nancy's career then just became much broader than than jazz. But um, yeah, I would be remiss if I didn't include Nancy in there. But no, I, I, you know, if if I do do another tribute album, uh, gosh, it will be a while before I do. One of the reasons I ask is because there's a song that Sarah Vaughn sings that I know you could put your stamp to it. I'm, I'm just, I just see you putting it, and it's No Count Blues. I could see you. Hmm. Doing a great rendition of No Count Blues because you got a little, you got some scatting in there. You got everything. It's just well, it's, it's a blues. Yeah, it's a blues. Now you know what? Let me say this. So let let me let me clarify this. If I was to do a tribute, the person that I would probably want to honor would be Nina Simone. Ah uh, ah. Uh. So one of the things, um, and this is this is my little bucket list here. Now I'm putting you on the spot. No, you're not. You know, it's my little bucket list. Okay. If um, if Billy was sitting there right now, mm-hmm. talking, we were talking earlier about interpretation. I'd ask her to sing "Autumn in New York." If if Ella was if Ella was sitting there, I'd ask her to sing "Summertime." Sarah Vaughn was singing "Sit Right Where You're Sitting." I'd say "Send in the Clowns." Could you, oh. could you sing that for me? Mm. But I've got Dee Dee Bridgewater here. Don't start, don't start. I got, I got one for you. I got one for you. Okay. okay, go ahead. But I got Dee Dee Bridgewater. Yes, you do. And your interpretation uh, of Angel Eyes just uh, does it for me. So now that I got Dee Dee Bridgewater here, since I can't ask Billy, Ella, and Sarah, I'm going to ask her, just give me a little taste of Angel Eyes, please. Do you have Keeping Tradition? In your catalog? Darn. You mean I really have to do this for this man? Please. Try to think that love's not around. Still it's uncomfortably clear. My old heart ain't gained no ground. Because my angel eyes ain't here. Oh, I, oh, it's back to me now. Yes, it is. Thank you. You're welcome. Brother. Thank you. Was that okay for you? No, that was great. Okay. That's a bucket list. I can check that, that off was, now. We can check that off? We can check that off the bucket list. Do you have list. anything else on your bucket list that concerns me? Uh, no, that was that was the that, that was, was the one that was the one thing. because when I knew I was doing this interview, uh-huh. um, when 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 Jim asked me to do this interview with you, uh-huh. first thing I said to him. Best version of Angel Eyes from me I've ever heard. Oh, thank you. Great arrangement, too. Yeah, it's just... Doom, doom, doom. Yes. Mm. Ooh, yes. So... Thank you. Well, let's actually talk about... Um, Maybe wh- I'll do that. I haven't done that in a long time. Thank you. Oh. Uh-huh. Okay. So let's talk about why you're, besides sitting down uh, with us here at uh, WSNC, why are you... You're in here, town? Yeah, because <laughs> you're doing a concert tomorrow night with the Piedmont Wind Symphony, a, yes. a holiday concert. WSNC is one of the sponsors yes. of this event. Yes. So what should we expect tomorrow night? Great eclectic music. You can expect some holiday classics that will be performed either with the symphony or in a small group setting with a young trio of musicians that I'm absolutely over the moon about. 
and um, there will be some jazz classics. Um, there will be a little bit of Abby. I don't even know what all I've got on here uh, on the list, but um, it'll be a very eclectic mix of mixed bag of, of uh, material. You know, we we began the show uh, when Jim introduced you about um, your work as a uh, renowned musician, musical artist. Um, but but you all, you're also um, you're an ambassador of food agriculture organization. I mean, you're a humanitarian. So, I guess my question is that side of you. What does this season mean for you? The holiday season. The holiday season for me is a season of giving. The holiday season means leaving no one out. Um, you know, trying to provide food or clothing or both to people who are without. So, and um, I can say I'm living in New Orleans uh, now for since a year and a half. That is one of the most amazing cities when it comes to giving and taking care of, of uh, people who are without. I really am impressed by, by the sense of community service that I find everywhere I go in New Orleans. It's a wonderful thing. So that's what it means for me. And, and it also, it's a, it's a time of, of family, you know. So for me, it's always really important to be with some of my family if I can't get everybody together because my children are scattered all over the place. Um, so, yeah, that, that's what it's about. T.D. Bridgewater, I want to thank you for sitting down with me and being in conversation. Great You're so difference. welcome. You're so welcome, Byron Williams. Thank you so much for inviting me on your show. That was D.D. Bridgewater. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. But before that, here's D.D. Bridgewater singing Angel Eyes in its entirety.
Now for my closing remarks. On June 11, 1963, President John F. Kennedy, watching with AIDS, was appalled when Alabama Governor George Wallace, in a ceremonious display, portrayed himself as physically blocking two black students from entering the University of Alabama. The standoff prompted the president to turn to speechwriter Ted Sorensen, saying, I think we better give that speech tonight. In a nationally televised address, Kennedy would elevate the cause of civil rights to a moral issue, one that was as old as the scriptures 
and as clear as the Constitution. From police dogs and fire hoses to a church bombing that killed four girls, Yellowhammer State in 1963 became the perceived epicenter for hatred. This Alabama was in part what Sam Cooke had in mind when he sung, A Change Is Gonna Come. It specifically motivated John Coltrane in the aftermath of the 16th Street church bombing to compose Alabama. But 54 years later, Alabama offered America a path to rise out of the ash pile of political intolerance that has consumed it for far too long. One aspect of the recent Alabama Senate race between Doug Jones and Roy Moore should be viewed for what it was. A Democrat in a ruby-red state narrowly defeated a deeply flawed candidate who should not have appeared on any ballot where free elections are held. But another aspect offers that human decency and integrity can still win over brazen political pursuits. The latter consideration was something that many Americans questioned. Had American politics rummaged into a hopeless marsh of invectives, hatred, and othering that titillates its way to victory? Does our binary public discourse that exists largely on the arid and rocky terrain of allegiance to orthodoxy reign supreme? Could President Donald Trump, as he infamously claimed as a candidate, stand on Fifth Avenue, shoot someone, and not lose any votes? Alabamians answered these questions in the negative though not a prognosticator for the upcoming 2018 midterm elections. The significance of Jones' victory marks the first time either party has broken serve since the president's 2016 victory by winning an election they were not supposed to win. The coalition in totality that swept Doug Jones to victory may be one not duplicated again. The Jones' coalition bore strong similarities to that of former President Barack Obama, including African-American and young voters. This part of the coalition, along with some disaffected Republicans, can certainly be replicated elsewhere. But there's an intangible characteristic of the Jones Coalition that may be unique to Alabama. Richard Shelby, Alabama's Republican senior senator, provided a profile and courage moment that cannot be devalued as contributing to Jones's victory. Shelby publicly opposed Moore, stating that he voted absentee for an undisclosed write-in candidate. Shelby made his comments on the Sunday prior to the election. Jones won the election by roughly 20,000 votes. There were approximately 22,000 write-in votes. Afterward, Shelby said, quote, I'm relieved, and I believe a lot of Republicans are relieved that Roy Moore and not some of his people aren't the face of the Republican Party that I know. Shelby stands out in part because placing integrity over politics has seemingly become the exception. This is the tragic byproduct when strict allegiance to orthodoxy is preferred over human dignity. In 1963, Martin Luther King said, quote, I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with his vicious racist, with his governor having his lips dripping with the words interposition and nullification. One day, right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. The irony here is palpable, that 54 years after King famously offered his dream for Alabama, 
that would be part of a coalition that would put hope back in America's public discourse. A hopeful sign indeed if we are moving toward that more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. You can also follow me on Twitter as well as Facebook. On a personal note, I want to thank Jim Steele, the host of Afternoon Jazz here at WSNC, for the opportunity to interview Dee Dee Bridgewater. This is our last show of 2017. The public morality will return in 2018 with judicious conversation with leading thinkers, artists, newsmakers, and scholars on issues important to our common life. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the public morality, I'm Byron Williams, and happy holidays to all.